Good morning. So glad you're here today. What a privilege we have to open up God's Word. We're today we're talking about the gift of singleness part two, and um, I'm looking forward to that today with you. Um, I don't know if, you, if you've done a lot of snow skiing or not. I've done a little bit, but um, when you're out there skiing on the slopes and, and you come down the mountain and you're with your friends, quite often when people are getting on the, on the chairlifts, someone will cry out, single, because uh, they need someone to ride up on the chairlift. But it's kind of easy to think, what a loser. They don't have any friends. They're, they're out here all by themselves skiing all alone. And... Um, you know, inside you're thinking, I'm glad I'm not them. Well, that's kind of how the church maybe even unknowingly treats singles sometimes. Almost as if they're like the person waiting for the chairlift saying, single, and you're thinking inside, I'm glad that's not me. And I know how that feels. Um, I, I lived 49 of, uh, I lived 28 of my 49 years single. So I know how that feels to feel almost like you're being treated um, like someone with a disease rather than someone who's to be valued based on who God made them to be. God values everyone, and, uh, and as we talk today about the gift of singleness, let's keep that in mind. Why is it so important? Why is it so important to talk about singleness? Well, Jesus is talking about it here, so that's important. But there's other reasons. First, the numbers, the sheer numbers. Um, there are almost an equal amount of married and single adults in America today. And according to Pew Research Center, 51% of adults 18 and over are presently married. And so 40, um, 49% are single. Now, back in 1960, 72% of adults were married. So the number of singles is going up. Um, most important reason is because God has something to say about singleness. That's why we should be concerned. So I want you to open your Bibles and let's see what God has to say. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 19, verses 10 through 12. And I'd ask you if you would stand with me to read God's word. Matthew 19, we'll begin at verse 12. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you are here with us, and we, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts this morning, Lord, that you would change us into the people you want us to be, and we pray in Christ's name, amen. In part one of the gift of singleness, we ask the question, what do these verses that we just read teach us about singleness? And then, what kind of response does God expect and enable in return? Now, today I want to ask, what else does Matthew 19, 10-12 teach us about singleness? And then ask the question, what does God want to do in us and through us as a result? That's where we're going to be going. I want you to go to verse 10 of Matthew 19. 
Jesus gets a statement from the disciples. They're giving their opinion to Jesus. And the context is that Jesus had a question that had come to him from the Pharisees. Is it okay to divorce your wife for any reason at all? Jesus' response was to lift marriage up to to its high, biblical, God-honoring level and say the only way that you can get divorced, biblically speaking, is if there is sexual immorality. Now, the disciples come to Jesus and then say, well, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. It's better not to marry. Now, some people back then thought that singleness was a higher spiritual choice. The disciples very clearly understood, though, that the the marriage covenant is binding in God's sight and that Jesus sets a very high standard enabled by him for us to meet but he permits divorce only in the most extreme of circumstances. So they give Jesus their opinion, but Jesus doesn't agree with them. Jesus doesn't go along with their way of thinking. In verse 11, he says to them, not everyone can receive this saying. They cannot make this a part of their life unless God has gifted them in that way. No, not everyone can receive this thing. It's a key word, receive. It means to handle it. It means to make room for it in your life. It means to accept it. And not any, just anyone can do that. Not everyone can receive the statement the disciples made regarding not marrying, but only those to whom it is given, because it's a gift from God. It's not just a personal choice you make. It's a gifting from God. And your personal choice may be, may be intertwined with that, but over your choice is God's directing and God's giving. Jesus goes on in verse 12 and says, there are eunuchs. Now, in, in verse 12, five times he uses the word eunuchs. We need to understand what he's talking about. He said, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. They were born that way. They were born... Uh, now, eunuch is not a word we use very often. It's kind of a dead word for us. Uh, we, we could say rather um, celibate, but that's not a word we use very often either. That's why we use the word single. That makes more sense to us. But he's saying that some people are single they, and, and, and they've been born that way. They, they're created that way by God, unable for some reason or even no desire for marriage. But then he says there are, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. So by circumstance, some people aren't going to marry. Now in those days, if, a, if an army conquered a, a group, uh, oftentimes they would take the men and they would perform an operation on those men that was very painful, enabling, uh, so that it, it left any, no chance of them being able to have kids with their wives. And so they became eunuchs, um, forced upon them. Uh, for example, if you, live, if you worked in a royal in a palace or court, and you worked among the royal women, oftentimes you would need to have that same operation so that you wouldn't pose any danger to the royal women. And so, for example, the Ethiopian eunuch. And he, he served in the, uh, in the court of, the, of, of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He was a eunuch, and it was an operation he undertook voluntarily to get that job. Kind of weird for us to think that, but that was the case. Then Jesus said, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs. Now, he's not talking about physical eunuchs here, but spiritually. And he says, they've made themselves eunuchs 
for the sake of the kingdom. They've made a choice not to marry so that they can serve God at a deeper level. That's, that's the way that Jesus explains this. And he says, look, the one who can receive this, receive it. If you can't, then don't. And it means that it will not be his will that everyone marry. It will not be his will that everyone remain single. And to better understand the power and significance of what Jesus is saying here, we need to understand the, the, the context of marriage and singleness in that day. The Jews had demoted singleness. They had made it a second-class status. They might have been basing their ideas initially on Genesis 2.18, where God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And God brought the woman to the man, and there's the first marriage. That was God's design for men and women to, to get married and, therefore, and then have kids to populate the earth. Every one of us is here today because we are the product of, of, a, of a man and a woman having a child. So they probably took their initial idea from the fact that, that, it, that marriage is God's design. Deuteronomy 23 says that eunuchs were not allowed in the temple. But the idea is, whatever they, they thought, they took it to the extreme. They took it to an extreme, and they, they discouraged singleness and expected marriage. So even if you had the gift of singleness, they would expect you to be married. They considered singles outcasts. So what is Jesus doing here and when he's talking here about singleness? What he is doing is he is teaching positively about it. He's not demoting singleness. He is, he is teaching as opposed to the tradition that they received. He is teaching in a good way about one of God's good gifts. Jesus had deep respect for the single life. He speaks with compassion regarding the single. He wasn't, he wasn't demoting singleness. And at the same time, he was not demoting marriage. It was not an either-or proposition. And that's, that's important to remember that, that, that Jesus wasn't, wasn't saying that, that you should you know, only be married or only be single. I mean, the disciples' statement that they made was, was pro-singleness and anti-marriage. And Jesus didn't agree because it wasn't in line with his teaching. Think about it, just in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. God tells, tells Joseph to marry Mary. He calls Peter, who was married, into ministry. Chapter 8, we see that. We see that he celebrates marriage in the early part here of Matthew 19. You see that in the Gospel of John in chapter 2 when he uh, blessed the wedding in, in Cana of Galilee. So what Jesus is saying here is that both marriage and singleness are God-given gifts. And there's a bigger issue in play here, serving the Lord as part of his, as part of his church, as part of his family. That's the, the bigger idea. And the main idea today is, is this, and it's really for you whether you're married or single. Really, whatever state of life you're in, it really is for you. It's this, that God wants you, and this is very similar to what I said last time, God wants you to receive his gifts and discern his will and trust his timing. But there is a so that attached to it. The reason why is because God wants to build godly contentment and Christ-like character 
in your life so that godly contentment and Christ-like character would be displayed in and through your life to the glory of God. Now we need to look at what this passage is teaching. We've already seen three things that I will, I will remind you by way of um, a brief mention. The first thing that this passage is teaching us is that it's not a question of marriage versus singleness. Jesus honored singleness. Jesus honored marriage. We need to reflect that same balance. And for those who have the gift of singleness, it is better not to marry. If you have the gift, don't marry. When Jesus said, for those who can receive it. Singleness is not for everyone. Marriage is not for everyone. And, and the other thing we saw is that God assigns to each person their particular calling. How did God call you? Verse 11, again, only for those to whom it is given. And so he is saying that marrying or not marrying is a gift from God. Paul also in 1 Corinthians 7 uh, strengthens that same idea. But what else does the passage teach? What else do these three quick verses teach us? I think they teach us something about, first of all, the sovereignty of God in giving his good gifts, as well as our sexuality being under God, and also something about our security when we are in Christ. So we'll point these things out. Number one, actually number four of the things that this passage teaches is that all three reasons that Jesus gives for singleness require acceptance of that state of life. You've got to receive it. So regarding God's sovereign grace granting us gifts, we've got to receive those gifts. We've got to accept the gift. The idea of accepting that, and I mentioned the idea of what that word means to receive, it, it literally means to handle, make room for in your life. It's the idea that you're, you're hospitable to the idea, that you are friendly with the idea, that you come to terms with it. So that if you're single or if you're married, you come to terms with that state of being. Now, some of you are single, but you are hoping someday to be married, and so you are coming to terms for now with that state of being. Others of you are married and you must come to terms with marriage in your life as something that is not to be broken till death parts you. So some of you have had your spouse die and you have become single not by choice but by circumstance and you, you receive that. But whatever the case, you must receive, you must accept the, the state that God has put you in. We do tend to think, when we think of singleness, of never been married younger people who are maybe looking forward to getting married, or they're getting a little bit older and they're wondering if they're going to get married. But there are many kinds of singles by circumstance. Like I mentioned, widowed. There are also divorced singles who got divorced on unbiblical grounds. They're Christians who got divorced for unbiblical reasons, so they are not permitted to remarry. There are divorced but wanting to reconcile with their former spouse. And, and many, other, many other options here, but there are a, a few. But the idea that I put out last time was that your singleness is a gift from God because he loves you and because he has your best in mind. And the same is true if you're married. Your marriage is a gift from God because he loves you and he has your best in mind. So you want to see... Everything in life is under, God, under God's sovereign control, under his oversight. So all three reasons for singleness require acceptance. 
The fifth thing I want to bring out is that, that it's regarding our sexuality being under God and not over God. It's the idea of, that singleness assumes celibacy. Singleness assumes celibacy. What, what singleness does is it rules out sexual intimacy with anyone in your life. I recently have read Biola University's statement on human sexuality, and I want to read one part of that because I think it's worded very well. It says this, God's design for marriage and sexuality is the foundational reason for viewing acts of sexual intimacy between a man and a woman outside of marriage and any act of sexual intimacy between two persons of the same sex as illegitimate moral options for the confessing Christian. Illegitimate moral options for the confessing Christian. Now, I love having kids in our worship services, but I need to ask the kids to to close their ears for just one moment. And uh, here, just close your ears. And I'll go like this, because you won't be able to hear me, right? So I'll just go like that when it's it's time to open them back up. Okay, here's what I need to say. If you are single, you are not having sex with anyone. You're not having sexual relationships with anyone. That's the way God intends. If you are married, you are having sex with your spouse. What happens many times is people who are single go and enjoy what God designs for marriage, and then married people don't. They withhold that from their spouse. So if you're married, have sex with your spouse. If you're not married, don't have sex with anyone. That's, that's so simple and so easy, but so, so tough to deal with in life. Here's what God calls for. Chastity and purity in singleness and cherishing and lifelong faithfulness in marriage. Cherishing the gift that God has given you. So singleness assumes celibacy. The other thing I want to point out that that this passage is teaching, and it has to do with our security that is rooted in, in God's opinion of us. I mean, a, a lot of people have opinions about you and me. And they come to those opinions based on what they see or what they hear. And, and sometimes the opinion is accurate, sometimes it is inaccurate, but God's opinion is always accurate. So what God thinks of you is always true, is always just, fair, it is always right, what we see in this passage is that God has a heart for singles. God has a heart for singles. He is, he is raising their status that they didn't have in that culture. Much like he did with women, he raised the status of women. He raised the status of children. And he raised the status of singles. You know, in Christ... The promise of Isaiah 56 comes into, into full bloom when, when there's these promises that God has given. And, in, and when you are in Christ and you're single, this comes true in your life. Isaiah 56, verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. It's really easy to say, you know, I'm just, my life is getting wasted here. Verse 4, For thus says the Lord, 
to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. If, if you remain, for example, if you're single right now, and, and then someday you get married, think about your single life, okay? If you're single now and you, you realize God has given you the gift and you're, you're, you, you're, you're, you're settled in that, the promise is that God will give you something in your life that is better for you than many sons and daughters. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. It's the idea of the Lord being our portion. That Lamentations 3, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. God has a heart for singles. I think of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Philip is in the middle of a, of a revival in, in Samaria, and he, he gets sent by God down to a desert road out in the middle of nowhere, and there's this, there's this man in a chariot riding by, and the Holy Spirit says to Philip, you go up and you... You go up to that chariot. You, you go and, and you, you, you engage that person in a conversation. And this, this Ethiopian eunuch is reading the prophet Isaiah. Which, by the way, you could really think of the prophet Isaiah as the Old Testament gospel for outcasts. And he's reading the prophet Isaiah, and he's reading Isaiah 53. What, is, what does he ask Philip? He says, who's the prophet speaking of? Himself or someone else? You know, Philip had asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And he goes, how can I unless someone helps me? So here's Philip there to help him. And Philip did not say, and by the way, we need to get you married first. No. He, he starts from the very scripture he's reading and says, he preaches Jesus to him. The scriptures tell us. From right there. And the, and the man believes and he even goes and gets baptized right then. Professing his faith in Christ. Believes with all his heart that Jesus is the Christ, the, the Son of God. God has a heart for singles. He wants, to, he wants to save anyone who comes to him. He will believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved. There is no status in life attached to that. It's just believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So he has a heart for singles. He has a heart for everyone. So what you've got here is that God's sovereignty, if you wrap these ideas up, God's sovereignty in grace grants us gifts and we accept those gifts. And, and they're good gifts. And by the way, if you're single and that's the gift God has given you, you're in good company. There are many Old Testament uh, and New Testament people that, that were most likely single. Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, and others. Um, Regarding our sexuality under God, singles are called and must remain committed to celibacy. And then in terms of your security in life being rooted in God's opinion and what he says about you, he's more concerned with your relationship with him than he is your relational status. So, so therefore, 
Like I mentioned in part one, don't feel pressure to get married if you're not married. Don't let you or someone else put pressure on you. You need to wait for God's best in your life. And you need to maximize your ministry potential right now. You figure out what God wants you to do and you do that with all your might. And find your ultimate joy and significance and identity in Christ. You trust, you, trust His perfect timing. You know, if you don't do those things, if, if you don't, uh, if you give into the pressure to, to get married just to do it, or if you, max, if you don't maximize your ministry potential, or if you don't find your ultimate joy in Christ, you're not ready to get married. Because those things make you more attractive to the person God would intend for you to marry. If you're not doing that, you're not ready to get married. And, and it doesn't matter if you're single or married. If, if the foundation of your life is not the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not rooted and grounded in Christ, then those relationships won't be right. They won't be what God intends. Why is this so important? Why is it so important? You need to know why. We need to know why. Here's why. Because God wants to do something in and through your life for his glory. What does he want to do? Well, the first thing he wants to do is he wants to build godly character in you. He wants to build in you a character that will cooperate with, with his desires that you would do as, as, as God says. You know, Matthew 19.10, the disciples say, well, it's better not to marry. And Jesus says, no, it's not true. There's something better, though. It's better for you if you're, if you're called to that. But if you're, if you're called to marriage, then that's better for you. But whatever it is, you want to reach for what's better as God has gifted you. And God gives gifts. One thing I've, I've learned is that God gives gifts along the way. He doesn't, like, uh, dump the pod in your front driveway and say, here's all the gifts I'm going to give you. Now, don't squander them all. Don't shoot your wad right away. You know, save these. Dole them out throughout your life. Ration them. He doesn't do that. He gives us gifts along the way at the appropriate time. I was out walking this week, and I was actually, at, at the very time, I was, I was um, listening to, to the gift of singleness, part one. I don't usually listen to my own sermons, but I did because I didn't want to repeat myself too much today. And so I'm listening to this sermon, and as I'm walking along the trail, all of the sudden, I see this, this little silver gift. And I, I pick it up, and, and I was like, this is cool, and it's just a piece of foam. It's like a Christmas ornament or something. And then about a few, you know, Yards later, another gift. And I actually picked up four of these. I taped them together so I wouldn't lose them. Um, but I found four of these things. And I was thinking, that's kind of cool. That's like God giving us gifts in his perfect timing along the way. And what it builds is expectancy. But not expecting something particular. Like, for example, God, you have to do this. No, it's just like, what's, gonna, what's God going to do next? When I was a kid, my mom and dad, when they would give us a gift, a big gift, they would, they would do something creative, and I actually did this with, with our kids at times. They would tie the gift to a long string, and they would put the gift at a final resting spot, and then, then the string would be woven all the way through the house and the yard, and there would be little notes along the way, and it would be building up to the gift. And whether the gift was a bike or maybe a car, it was never like a piece of cheese, okay? 
That would be cruel, wouldn't it? You know, we're a big gift, a big gift. Oh, cheese and crackers. No. It was like, oh, wow. But I had this expectancy, and, and it was like, it wasn't like if it's not a pony, I won't like it. It's whatever this is, it's going to be good. Because my parents thought enough to me to put the string out. It was gift on a rope. It was a gift on a rope. And, and it was pretty cool because it, it didn't matter what they gave me. I was content with it. Uh, you never complain after you get a gift on a rope. You're just like, wow, thank you for thinking of me. And always it was a big gift. If there was a rope attached, it was a big gift. God gives gifts along the way. It's kind of a sub-point there under godly contentment is learn to receive those gifts in God's due time and not complain about what you get. And, and, and then another part kind of under that idea of godly contentment is don't plan your life. Don't plan your life. People are all into planning out their life. In five years, I'd like my life to look like this. In 10 years, I'd like to do this. And in 20 years, the problem with that is you get really locked into your idea about how your life's to be in 5 or 10 or 15 years. And if it doesn't happen that way, if God directs your course in another way, you, you might even get disillusioned or upset about it. God didn't come through. God didn't do the thing that he promised me. Well, no, he didn't promise you. You made it up. So you've got to be very careful. Now, Proverbs 16 says, the mind of man plans his way. It's not a bad thing to plan. Not a bad thing to dream. But it is a bad thing for you if you make that, well, that equals God's plan because I have these ideas. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. He might take you on a right turn or a left turn. He might keep you going straight. There might be a U-turn sometimes. Proverbs 16.3 says, commit your work to the Lord. Your plans will be established. Commit means to roll. You put it all into God. You roll it over to God. (laughs) You roll it into God's hands and the plans that you have will be established because God's pretty much making the plans for you and you're receiving them along the way. Yes, you're thinking. Yes, you're dreaming. Yes, you're planning. But God's directing your steps. So, so don't plan your life. Don't, don't expect God to put a stamp of approval on all the things you want in life. Like you go to the city and you get a building permit to build something. That's not how it is. Or you go to your mom and dad and ask permission to go somewhere. That's not how this is. God works with process, not just a point in time where you can just plan it all out. Now, God will fulfill your every desire for goodness. That's what 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 says. God will fulfill every desire you have for goodness. If you say, you know, I, I really want to please God with everything in, in my whole being, well, that desire is going to be fulfilled. I can guarantee you that. Don't plan your life. You've got to be content. Go with me to Philippians 4. Well-known passage. Paul is talking in the context of the Philippian church reviving their concern for him in regards to giving to God's work. That's the context. And Paul says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So he's learned this as he's gone through life. And then he says, I know how to be brought low and how to abound in any and every circumstance. So this work covers everything. Singleness, married, uh, jobless, whatever it is. I have learned the secret. 
in any and every situation, every circumstance, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And he says in verse 13, here's the secret, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can receive being in need even as a gift from God. I can receive having plenty, even as a gift from God. I I can do these things because Christ is in me. He's strengthening me. The secret is trusting Christ. There's a fine line, by the way, between being content and getting complacent. Contentedly cherishing God's good gifts and just being lazy. There's a fine line between that at times. But you've got to remember this. You, God gives gifts along the way and, and he wants to build contentment in you but it's not going to be in the car you drive or the house you live in or the clothes you wear or the person you find to marry. That will, that will not bring you true happiness. Only being in Christ. Uh, true happiness is only found in Christ. You know, for example, let's say you're looking for love. You're like, I'm, I'm looking, I'm on. When I was single, I was always, at least as an adult when I was single, I was always looking for, Lord, where's my wife? Okay, where is she? And, and you look and you, you try and fail and things like that. And you finally find her and you hope that, you know, your head is clear enough to make the right decision and, and all that. And my, I finally woke up and made the right decision. Praise God, 21 years this year. But here's the deal. You're looking for love. There's only one love that will not fail you. God's love in Christ. Be content in that. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in him. One more thing that God wants to build in us. He wants to build godly contentment, but he also wants to build Christ-like character. He wants to make you like Christ. That's what he wants to build in your life. That's why it's so important to follow God's design. Cooperate with God's desires. Look at verse 12, Matthew 19, verse 12. It's the people who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. The idea is it's not about you. Your life is not about you. It's about the kingdom of God. The prayer we should be praying is, Lord, how can you best use me for your kingdom in whatever state I'm in? If you're single, you should be praying that. If you're married, you should be praying that. How can you best use me for your kingdom, Lord? It's a prayer that God will answer. Christ-like character. He wants to to build that in you. But there's something that that needs to take place in our life if if Christ-like character is going to be built. The way I put it is you've got to stay in bounds. You've got to stay in bounds. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we'll begin at, at verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So he's commending them. He's saying, you're doing a good job. And then he said, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So Jesus' is, his word is on it. This is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in the matter. Transgress means to step over the line. You've got to stay in bounds. Don't step over the line. And then defraud or cheat your brother means to overreach, to take more than what was given. 
If you're single, you haven't been given a spouse, so you can't have a relationship with someone who's not your spouse that only married people are to have. And, and you can't reject... It says if, if the one who rejects this, verse 8, the one who rejects it, the, disregards it, literally means to reject, disregards or rejects not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The idea here is that if we reject, it means do away what's been laid down. So let's just say you're on a soccer field and there's the markers of the field, the boundaries. And you go out of bounds, the ball's not in play anymore. Well, think about God's design that he has put out there uh, for marriage, for singleness, for, for our good and his glory. We've got to stay in bounds or else we'll get disqualified. We can think of a lot of people that have been disqualified. Think of that in sports. It's easy to think of. And you've got Pete Rose and Barry Bonds and all this. You've got great careers that get ruined by one act or, or several acts of, that were um, unwise. They broke the rules and so they got suspended or, or kicked out even for life. See, Jesus is the king. And, and as such, he's in charge. But what happens? We deceptively try to play God we want to be king. And, and I, you know, all I can say is look in the mirror and try not to be too shocked. Um, sin has done a number on you too. Sin does, a num- has done a number on me. And we can blast away at others all we want, but at the end of the day, we must deal with the enemy within. Sin, a ruthless evil full of deadly poison, attacks like a flesh-eating bacteria, there's no mercy. It eats away like, like cancer, like rust. And the cure is not earthbound. The cure is not, is not uh, found under the sun. It's only found in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ defeated sin and death once for all at the cross. That is where our answer is found. That is where the cure for our sin is found. And, and when we go out of bounds means we've sinned we've we've gone beyond we've gone outside of what god is intending and and no one is without sin we grieve when we see people going over outside the bounds but we have to first look in our own hearts and say where have i gone out of bounds lord where do i need to repent where do i need to come clean jesus is the king the gospel of jesus christ must be your passion you want to please him. And we've all crossed the line. We've all gone out of bounds many times. And we basically deserve to be disqualified. We, we deserve... Um, we, we, see, we've done worse than going out of bounds. And, and we've broken every rule. So we deserve that disqualification. We deserve um, not just a seven-game suspension, not just a season-long suspension, or even a lifetime suspension. No, what we deserve is an is a eternal suspension, eternal disqualification. You know, God, you could think of God as kind of like a referee, but then you go, but no, but he's more than a referee. He's, he's also the, the coach, but he's more than just the coach. He's the general manager, but he's more than just the general manager. He's the owner. And he, everything is, is, is wrapped up in him. And he doesn't keep moving the boundaries. You know, oh, he's going to let me slide. No, the silence you hear, that's, that's God's kindness giving you time to repent. He's not going to keep on moving the boundaries for you and pretty soon you got like a, you know, 10-mile wide football field. No. 
The boundaries are set because they're in the word of God. They never change. Our culture, by the way, is trying to change the boundaries on human sexuality, on marriage, on everything. You've got to think about it. The God's, word, God's word stands. The grass withers, the flowers fall off, but the word of God stands forever. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. So God doesn't keep moving the boundaries. They're set, they're fixed, but he is not punitive with us who want to repent. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is even forgiving those who want, to re- who want to be forgiven. You want to be forgiven? God will forgive you. You don't want to be forgiven. Well, you don't have a, you're, you're on your own, right? See, your choices matter. Your choices in life really matter. Uh, verse, Psalm 141.3 says, says this. It's a prayer to God. It says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my lips, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Don't let my heart incline to any evil way. You know, it's, it's like the Lord's Prayer. Uh, deliver us from evil. God is glorified. The gospel message is magnified when someone's life is fully given over to him. And, and that comes through a desire for God's word and prayer. Uh, it's necessary like air and, and water and food and nutrients. You, you have to have the word of God in prayer. And it, it's shown by obedience to God and what he says in his word. Jesus said, if you, if you love me, you'll, you'll, you'll do what I say. John chapter 14, he says it three times in a row. If you love me, you'll do what I say. And it also comes through Christ-centered relationships. If you're single today, and let's say you're in a relationship with someone of the opposite sex, and, and there's a romantic interest of some sort, you need older, wiser godlier people in your life to hold you accountable. If you're single today and you're in a relationship with someone of the opposite sex that has a romantic uh, thought to it, then, then here's one for you. Don't read the Bible and pray with that person alone. Why? Because you're going to build intimacy that, that you shouldn't be building right now. You need to, you need to pray and, and, and read the word with that person in groups. You need to have people hold you accountable so that you can remain pure. and Don't awaken love, as Song of Solomon said, don't awaken love until it pleases, until God brings that. And I know what a lot of you are thinking right now. What you're thinking is, man, I've blown it. I've really blown it. Maybe I'm disqualified. Maybe, maybe I'm down and out. Maybe I'm just I'm down for the count. I've blown it too much, so I, I guess I'll just, you know, go fishing. What do you do? Well, you, you come clean with God. You confess your sins. You make things right. You turn from those sins. You, you, you're racked with guilt over your sins, and you, you, you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you confess those sins to him, and you receive forgiveness of sin. And you receive freedom once again. I love Milton Vincent's book, uh, A Gospel Primer for Christians. I don't, there's no book over the last couple years that I've given away more than that book. He speaks in that book at one point of freedom from sin's power. Here's what he says. He says, as long as I am stricken with the guilt of my sins, I will be captive to them and will often find myself recommitting the very sins about which I feel most guilty. The devil is well, well aware of this fact. He knows that if he can keep me tormented by sin's guilt, he can dominate me with sin's power. 
The gospel, however, slays sin at this root point and thereby nullifies sin's power over me. The forgiveness of God made known to me through the gospel liberates me first from its guilt and preaching such forgiveness to myself is a practical way of putting the gospel into operation as a nullifier of sin's power in my life. You may be down, but you're not out if you have Jesus in your life. You've got to watch your heart. You've got to guard your heart with all diligence because from it, Proverbs 4.23 says, flow the springs of life. God is glorified and the gospel message is amplified by a life fully committed to Christ. Take a trip beyond the obvious and you know that sometimes the thing you're most discontent about, the thing you're most complaining about in life is the very thing that God wants to use to build the deepest character in you. Sometimes God's greatest blessing is waiting just around the bend of a seemingly impossible situation. And there's roadblocks all around, and there's, there's big walls built up and hurdles in the way, and there seems to be no way out, and you're boxed in, and you can only look up to God. You know, it's interesting that if you're single, he often uses and blesses singles in ways that he does not use and bless married people. And sometimes you think, well, that's, that's a lot of suffering to go through because I have a desire for something else. But that's God's gift for you right now, whatever it is. And sometimes his best gifts come wrapped up in, in tough situations. Suffering discipleship to a suffering Savior. That's the call. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you, Lord, that we can seek your grace. The grace of you who went to the cross on our behalf. You accepted your painful assignments. You gave up your desires. Uh, and you, you, you came to save sinners. And Lord, so we, we want to be willing to give up our desires to you who went to the cross. So that we might have endurance through it. Lord, we don't want to waste our lives. We don't want to waste the gift that you, the gifts that you have given, living, knowing that we have them, but leaving them unclaimed. Lord, we want to celebrate the gifts you've given us right now, right here in our lives. And Lord, we, we ask that where would you have us be best used for your kingdom as you build your church? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.